Again, remember that through this, that uh, it is, uh, Paul is clearly um, writing to communicate the preeminence, the majesty, the divinity uh, of who Jesus Christ is. Uh, that is his focus as he writes to these uh, believers in Colossae. So beginning in verse 17, speaking of Christ, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, remember when you look at verse 15, when it says he is the image of the invisible God, that the language that Paul uses there when he speaks of him being an image is, you could, you could say he is an exact duplicate. That can be a little dangerous because we're not saying there's two gods. But the idea is Jesus is... Uh, the, the essence of, of who God is. That, that this copy is an exact copy. He's trying to use that language and make it as strong as possible so that we understand that this is the same, it's just another way of saying he is God. Remember that to, to claim to be equal uh, with any other person, we know is not the claim, is not the claim to be that person. But when that person is, is as unique as God is, Primarily, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, all those things. To claim to be equal in that sense, you have to be God, because there's no other being that has all those qualities. And so Paul is really stressing this um, uh, in this passage. Again, when he says he's the firstborn of all creation, remember that firstborn, I, I guess the easy way uh, to think of that is that's a title, right? So it's not saying that Jesus was created. Uh, so the idea is that he's the firstborn or he is the one who is First, he is above all. It's just another way of saying that. And so that's why Paul begins that way when he says he's the firstborn of all creation. And then uh, we've covered the other two verses of the last several weeks. So again, looking at verse 17 now, he continues the thought and he says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So I have in your notes there, and this comes from, uh, I, uh, one of, I can't remember which Greek dictionary this came out of, but anyway. Um, the, uh, for, the, uh, the Greek word that's used for he is, that is what we call present tense. So that means something that is continuous or it is a timeless present. So when he says he is before all things, that means he always is before all things. That's what's being emphasized with that. That's why sometimes the tense of a verb, when we talk about what's going on with the Greek language, that's what we're getting out of that. Remember that the Greek will always enhance what we're understanding uh, it may give greater depth, but it will never change uh, what's being communicated just in the English. And again, it's important to say that because sometimes false teachers will try to mislead individuals by supposedly using the Greek. Um, and so that's why we need to make sure that we're kind of on top of that. And even though you don't know Greek, if you have the ability to be disciplined in grasping the context you will be safe 95% of the times when it comes to understanding what the Bible says. We never want to give anyone the impression that you have to know Greek or Hebrew to understand the Bible. Um, we may have greater understanding and more in-depth understanding if you are able to read either Greek or Hebrew or both. But it is not a requirement, because if that was, then there's a whole bunch of people that are in a heap of trouble. Uh, when it comes to that. So that's the greatness, really, of the Word of God uh, and the greatness of how God has preserved His Word because those who have translated the Bible through the years or the languages have really gone through great pains to make sure that they are as accurate as possible. Uh, and normally, just so in, in case you weren't aware of this, all of the translations that we have, especially all the ones that we say that are good, they were never translated by just one person. It's groups of, uh, groups of people. Uh, I almost said it's groups of men, but there's some women uh, that are involved in that. Uh, but the idea is, is that um, 
for example, the way for, I think the ESV did this way, the New King James was this way, the NIV was this way. Um, I think even the New American Standard was done this way, where you would have, you have a couple of guys who are the editors for the entire project over both Old and New Testament. Then you have a separate editor over the Old Testament and a separate editor over the New Testament. Then they have an individual who is kind of the, one of the main guys, or maybe two or three guys that would be over the Gospel of Mark. And then there would be 14 guys that are working on that translation. And then when they get the translation done, it goes before those two guys. And then that's presented to the other ones. Then, and then there's, so it goes through all these committees. And the goal is always to be as accurate as possible to the Greek language, this New Testament, or the Hebrew language, which is the Old Testament. Uh, so it's, very, it's a very rigorous process. Um, the, the men, or when I say men, I mean it's women, men and women, it's primarily men, uh, but they're, they, they all have a love for the Word of God, and they have a love uh, to the point that they want to be as accurate as possible. And having all of those individuals involved eliminates, uh, for the most part, a chance that someone's own ideas can be slipped into the translation. That's what they're trying to prevent against. It's not just mistranslating the word um, and maybe you know, getting the wrong meaning from it, but also making sure that there's no agenda that somebody has, which we're all human beings. People can have that, even if they have good intentions. Uh, and so there's quite a process that's involved. And in most of the cases, probably now because of the internet, uh, in all the cases, when it comes to any translation, you can look up uh, the foundation or whoever was funding it, and you can see the list of individuals that are involved in the project. And again, I think all that just points back again to the absolute honesty of Christianity, and everything is just above board. Um, and you'll find that even among uh, individuals who are experts in Greek and Hebrew who are not believers, uh, they also attest to the fact that the translation is accurate. You know, they don't have a, they don't have a, they don't have a, a dog in the fight. Uh, but they can at least, because of their academic standards and because of their academic reputation, they're not going to just say something just to say something. And they will attest that, yep, that's, that's what it says. I don't believe it, but that's what it says. You know, that's, that's accurate. Uh, so that's why we can really have great confidence in what we have uh, as far as what you have at home, what you carry around with you, or it's in your, wherever it is. Uh, and that's, that's very good. It's very important for us to know that. Um, and so we want to make sure we always keep that in our mind. So again, back to the definition then uh, for the word that's used for he is. It's present tense, meaning it's a continuous or a timeless present. And so the idea there is that the existence of the sun is apart from all time. It expresses immutability. Uh, immutability is just a fancy word that he is unchanging. So it expresses the un unchanging of, God, of, of Jesus' existence. And it describes Christ's absolute existence. Uh, existence as the eternal I am. Thus Paul does not say that Jesus came to be before all things, but that he is, present tense, continually before all things. Uh, and that gives sense uh, to a phrase that comes from the Bible, which is, I exist or I am, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. In Vine's dictionary, it says, Paul makes a clear declaration of his, meaning Christ, eternal pre-existence as the Son. For the whole passage is a presentation of his deity, his relationship, his creative and sustaining power as the son of, of his, the, fa uh, the, the father's, have, father's love. The teaching that his sonship had a beginning at his birth or at any other time is utterly erroneous and derogatory to his glory. The apostle does not say he was before all things, but he is before all things. Therefore, his pre-existence is absolute existence. Now all of that, just so you understand, remember I mentioned before that when it comes to many things that we believe theologically, actually many things that we were even taught as children, many things that we're taught as children is not just something that when you just read the Bible and it's obvious. It's actually what has happened is a lot of, again, uh, experts, uh, academics, brilliant individuals have studied deeply what does the scriptures teach and say, and they've haggled through all of the in a sense, the what ifs, and how do we know it means this, and how do we know it doesn't mean that, and all those things, and then kind of boil it down to where it can be presented. So a lot of times individuals, because we've heard it our whole life, that Jesus is God, it's easy for us to think that it's not a big deal. Now, I don't mean we we're thinking it's not a big deal that he's God. That's not what I mean. But the idea that that is a truth, that really is um, an incredible truth, 
it doesn't impact us in one sense the same way because we've always heard it. And so sometimes we can kind of take it for granted and think, well, of course, everyone knows that, but everyone doesn't know that. Uh, that's not the case. And so what we've been taught, which was a good thing, we were taught correctly, even when we were young, but the, but the thing is, is that what we were taught was, again, came as a result of literally, at times, thousands of hours uh, and maybe decades of study of the Word of God. Uh, but our Christian education, so to speak, what we, what we learn in Sunday school all the way up, um, I, even the things that I teach, I'm teaching an apologetics class in Sunday school, uh, but what I am teaching there, even though in a sense it's kind of what we might call a basic um, apologetics uh, uh, outline, the bottom line is that's the result of thousands of hours of study, not by me. Uh, I may have a couple hundred hours in, but I, that stuff is, has been pounded and poured through by individuals who are vastly uh, more brilliant than I could ever even hope to be, and has been hashed out through time, through debates with those who don't believe, and, and again, all of those things that are going on. So we, that's why you sometimes hear individuals say that we are living, at least theologically or spiritually, as Christians, in a very rich time. What we have available to us, almost at our fingertips, because of the internet, because of what we can buy uh, just in books, you know, we, we have the ability... Within a, within a matter of just a few years of being able to take advantage of thousands of years of study. And so our knowledge is advanced in that sense so much quicker than it has been really at any other time. It's, it's amazing. What you and I can easily take for granted, uh, there are many Christians in other countries who would weep if they had half of the resources that we have. Now, that's not to make us feel guilty. I mean, we, obviously we, sh we should take better advantage of it and that type of thing. But the bottom line is, is that we really are blessed in that way. And there's a, just an enormous number of things that we are aware of and that we know and that we understand uh, because of all the advances that have been made. And because, again, many, many Christians have just sat down and spent hours studying and writing, not really even knowing if what they're writing will last 10 years after their death. You know, I'm reading a book now by uh, Jonathan Edwards. You know, he was around in the, in the 1700s. He was a brilliant man. I don't find no evidence anywhere that he was thinking, you know, I'm writing this because I know in about 150 years, some people are going to get a lot of information from what I'm writing. That that's, wasn't just in his, on his brain. He, but he was developing these things for his children, for the people that, that he was around at that time, yet it, was, it really is brilliant in every way. And just that one individual, many of his things have been preserved, and again, we're able to take advantage of this man's brilliance and his study. And he's not the only one. There's many, many others. Um, and so we really are blessed uh, when it comes to that. So even that, that whole thing I just read, coming out of those two, uh, basically, Greek dictionaries, uh, which, a lot of, which is a lot of information, was, again, hashed out over many, many hours by individuals making sure that that's accurate. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Christianity has prevailed for so long is because there's been such great efforts um, to preserve the word and our understanding of the word. Um, and also there's a consistency that's there uh, through the years. You know, you and I, most of what we believe is what, the early, is what Christians believed in 800 A.D., and what they believe in 800 A.D. is what Christians believe in 200 A.D. I mean, it's phenomenal. There's now more to know because of all the years of study. So there are things that we actually understand they didn't. Also because of how history's progressed, we can see things that obviously they had no idea was going to happen. But the bottom line is, is there's this consistency through the years, uh, which again, that also attests to the truthfulness of Christianity. Because if it's true, then the truth doesn't change. It will always be the same, uh, even when it comes to, uh, you know, them putting rockets in space. Uh, there is no scientist who will be studied who says, you know, I'm not sure 2 plus 2 actually equals 4. That's a really basic thing in math, right? But if, if, if they're not on the page there, yeah, they're not going to be, <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, yeah, we don't need this guy. He's got some weird ideas. So anyway, uh, I just want to make sure that I kind of, I want to bring that up to you, just kind of remind you of, of how how really good we have it and how great it is and what a great blessing that is. Continuing on about this, uh, this passage, this verse, verse 17. 
uh, where again we're talking about the eternal existence of Jesus. Jesus, he, he himself claimed his eternal existence. Open your Bibles to John 8, um, verses 57 through 59. There are some individuals that had some problems with the teaching of Jesus, and they, they brought it up to him. And so they says, you are not yet 50 years old, and, you, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus replied, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So the question we have to ask ourselves, because sometimes individuals will say this. Sometimes a skeptic will say, Jesus nowhere says, I am God. So if you show them this verse, they would say, oh, I don't see it in there. Where does he say, I am God? Right? That's because they're looking for that exact phrase. Well, when he says... Before Abraham was born, I am, that is a special phrase. That's a special title that's used. Uh, and in the Greek, it is I am the self-existent one. All right? So there's only one being uh, that anyone understands who is a self-existent being, someone who doesn't need anyone or anything else to exist or come into existence. That would be God. You know, all of us came into existence because of our mom and our dad. Uh, we know that we, we have existence because we, are, we, we breathe air, we drink water, we eat food. We're dependent on many things uh, and many people to exist. God needs none of that. And so that, that wording, uh, which is kind of it's strange in English, when Jesus says, I am, before Abraham was, I am. Well, now, but they all knew what he meant. How do we know that? Well, because they picked up a bunch of, they were going to stone him to death. The Jews only, back then, the Jews would only stone you for one thing, blasphemy. What was blasphemy? You make yourself God. So there was no confusion among them as to what Jesus was saying, and that's important. Uh, so, and that's why if you're reading through commentaries, they will ask you, uh, or they may bring up this question as a rhetorical way to kind of get into the subject, and that is why did they seek to stone him? Well, because stoning, again, was the normal punishment for blasphemy, in the Old Testament, and so this attempt uh, shows that they believed he was committing blasphemy by claiming to be God. So again, Jesus Christ is not some lesser created being who created the universe at some time later. Uh, he is the eternal God who existed as the great I Am before anything was created. That's what he was saying there in John. Uh, again, as an aside, you might want to file these verses in your mind so that you will be able to give a reply to the skeptic, again, who says Jesus never claimed to be God, uh, because that is a, is a great misconception. So again, as we mentioned before, sometimes the cults do this, sometimes skeptics do this. They will, and they may not always know they're doing this. Remember sometimes, maybe many times, people are just repeating what they've heard. All right? but, but they end up kind of playing, a, it's a word game. And it's because they don't have understanding of what's being, being said. Remember that the Bible is an ancient text. Uh, you just can't pick it up and just read it as a 21st century American and just, oh yeah, I understand that. Uh, you may understand some things, but there's a lot that is going to elude you uh, because it requires study and understanding and the whole idea of context and everything else. And that's why, I, you may remember this, you may not. I kind of mentioned before that in, in some colleges, actually in many colleges, um, in English classes, because they don't do this in science classes, uh, but they teach what's called postmodern theory. So postmodern theory is basically that um, when you read a book, let's say you read an old book, you, the reader, give meaning to what is being said. What we normally ask ourselves when we're reading like the Bible is, what did the author mean? I need to understand what he meant and then as we understand that, we then seek to apply that to our lives. But in postmodernism, what they may say is, well, no one can understand what they, what they meant because you weren't there, but that doesn't matter. The reader supplies the meaning. And then when you do that, you can change the meaning. You can make it say whatever you want to say. Uh, and so th and that's very problematic. But again, as I mentioned, they may do that in English, but they don't do that in science. All right? Um, if you're going to have someone either wire your house as an electrician or you're going to have a doctor do surgery on you, you don't want the, the guy who says, well, I know the text says that, but to me it means something different. 
Uh, that's, no, one, no doctor ever gets an award um, for saying that, well, when I read the textbooks, they meant something completely different to me, and this is what I've become. I think we would say he's become a quack as a result of that. Um, so that postmodern thing is, in a sense, it's almost like a joke. It's just a weird thing that people get into. Um, but we do need to be aware of it because it has infiltrated uh, the church in some areas. Um, normally, that would be what, what we might call a liberal church, you know, because they have different stances they take. Uh, and when you look at what the scripture says, it becomes clear they're not following what the scripture says. They try to change it. Um, the way they do that, sometimes people can get sucked in. Um, uh, just kind of give you just a quick example. Um, I was talking once to a guy who was a, a homosexual activist. And so he, he asked me about Romans and about what it said. And I, so I was, you know, I said, oh, well, I said, well, what are you getting at? I think, I think it's pretty plain. And if you're telling me Romans 1, that means you're familiar with it. And I said, and so I asked him, you know, what he was trying to get at. And he says, well, he says, basically, according to Romans 1, if I date and marry a woman, that would be sinful for me. I said, how do you get that? He says, well, because in Romans 1, it says that the man left the natural use of the woman to do with men what is unfitting. He says, but for me, being with another man is natural. So to be with a woman would be unnatural. And that would be violating the scripture. And I would say, well, no. I said, because God is the one who determines what's natural and unnatural, not us. So if your natural desires or my natural desires are contrary to what God says is natural, then guess who's wrong? So since God has established that the natural use of the for the man is what's natural, then that is the truth that we, would, that we should live by. And... <laughs> He was kind of a funny guy, and he goes, oh, you know, when I, I learned that from someone, they never said that, because <laughs> he, he was repeating what he had heard. Uh, but anyway, it didn't change his mind. But, uh, but that's sometimes how they'll do it. They'll play it they, there's a kind of a game there, because they think that the text of Scripture is you can make it mean whatever you want. Um, you may have heard that debate when it comes in politics to our Constitution. Remember, there are those who will say that it's a living, breathing document. What they mean by that is, is that it's a document that we change what it means by the, def by the time we live in. So it's a living, breathing thing that's malleable uh, because obviously they, couldn't, they didn't know what was going to be around. Then you have others who are considered a constitutionalist, and they may use other words to describe them, but that's individual says, nope, it means exactly what it says, Period. We apply that to our day, but that we don't change the definitions of words or phrases or anything else. And that's the debate that we have that's been in politics now for decades. Uh, same idea um, is where all that comes from. The verse also goes on to say, and in him, all things hold together. Uh, so again, as when you read through the passage, uh, I'm sure you may have noticed that there's the repetition of the, of the words, all things. That's continually thrown in there, all things, all things, all things. And that's used by Paul because he's trying to emphasize Christ's total sovereignty and his complete control over all creation. So again, he's really emphasizing this so that it becomes clear that what he's claiming about Christ is that Christ is God. He is absolutely sovereign. There is nothing that's outside of his control, nothing outside of his power. Just there's, it's, it's all under his authority, period. And so that's another reason why it, it's, a, it's a, the right thing for us to worship Christ. Because that used to be one of the arguments against Christians um, early on by those who were saying that Christians were inconsistent. That we were claiming that there was only one God, but we're worshiping a man who claims to be God. And so they say that doesn't make sense. Of course, in their mind, they're thinking of God in the way they define God, which is in a pagan way not the way the scripture um, kind of defines who God is. But so that's why all these things that Paul is saying is, was in one sense even more important back then uh, than it is today because of how people, how people then were viewing who God was or what God was. So again, Jesus created everything, so he created it. He now sustains it. He is the one that holds it together. 
sustaining it means that he gives support to uphold. He keeps it from, from falling. Um, he keeps it from falling apart. Uh, so, uh, one individual added, I think it was Warren Wiersbe, he says, if Christ can do that with the creation, then how much more can he keep our lives from falling apart if we surrender to his sovereign rule over our lives? So the idea is, again, we see the greatness and the majesty of Christ in holding all these things together. So when we say that, what we mean, I've mentioned this to you before, what we mean by that is this. So when we identify the law of gravity, all we're doing is giving a term to something that we've identified that always takes place. But why does gravity work? Well, it can be explained to a degree because the earth spins at a certain speed. And there's all, we go into all these things, science and mathematical, but then you still have to ask the question, but why does that happen? And you keep, keep asking that question, and we know that all those things take place because Christ exists. His existence holds all that together. And we'll see that in a minute, uh, hopefully in a quote um, that I have there for you to read. MacArthur says this about Christ. He maintains the delicate balance necessary to life's existence. He literally holds all things together. He is the power behind every consistency in the universe. He is the one who keeps all the entities in space in their motion. He is the energy of the universe. So I gave you the, a quote from a book called The Atom Speaks. Uh, and so what, what I'm going to read to you and what you can read uh, at least most of the way through is this man's description of what he understands concerning the atom. And the question he gets to is that there's this dilemma, and that is if A is true about the atom, and if B is true about the atom, then there should be this explosion that doesn't happen. Why is that? Why, why does everything work the way it's supposed to work? Science can only explain so much. They can explain a lot, but there's still some things that are beyond them to be able to explain the why. All right, so the book is called The Adam Speaks. The, the man who wrote it, the doctor, was Dr. Lee Chestnut. And so he's talking about the puzzle of the nucleus of the atom. So it reads this way. Consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he had now drawn from the oxygen nucleus. For there are eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the con confines of this tiny nucleus. With them are eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged, eight with no charge. Earlier, physicists had discovered that, the, that like charges of electricity and like magnetic poles repel each other. And unlike charges or magnetic poles attract each other. The entire history of electrical phenomena and electrical equipment have been built up on these principles known as, uh, I think it's Coulomb's, law of electrostatic force and the law of magnetism. What was wrong? What holds the nucleus together? Why doesn't it fly apart? And therefore, why do not all atoms fly apart? So again, all he's saying is when we look at the nucleus of the atom, we already understand what all these properties mean. So when we see all these properties in the atom, based on everything we know, this should be flying apart and there should be absolute chaos. But there's not. We're looking at this atom that's not happening. Why? And of course, they can't explain it. Um, he goes on and he says this. He goes and describes a bunch of experiments that took place in the 1920s, 1930s, talked about the law that was applied to atomic nuclei. He talked about powerful atom smashers that were used to fire proteins into the nuclei of atoms. He says those experiments also gave scientists an understanding of the incredibly powerful force that held protons together within the nucleus. Scientists have dubbed that force the strong nuclear force, but again, they have no explanation for why it exists. Now, some of you may understand all of that. I don't, but I believe it, but I just don't understand it. And then he says this, the physicist George Gamow, one of the founders of the Big Bang Theory of the origin of the universe, wrote, the fact that we live in a world in which practically every object is a potential nuclear explosive without being blown to bits is due to the extreme difficulties that attend the starting of a nuclear reaction. Uh, and then he says, we need to grasp what that implies. It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should have never been created. And if created, they should have blown up instantly. Yet here they are. Some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. The nature of the inhibition is also a secret, one thus far reserved by nature for herself. 
So again, and you'll find this uh, in a lot of other modern books dealing with science, if you're into that kind of thing, where when they, when they start to dig into the, the why behind certain things and why they don't react the way they think they should, they don't have an explanation. Now, the Christians do. There are some scientists who are Christians, and they'll say, well, that's clearly because God is the one, God is the force that holds all these things together. And no matter how hard we look, we can't figure out what that thing is, you know, if it's, even if it's explainable. Uh, but again, it, it just keeps pointing back to God. That's why um, sometimes, even though it may seem rare, there are some scientists who do become believers. Because when they keep looking at this kind of stuff, they just realize that there's just no way that evolution, that's the only other theory out there, explains any of this. Uh, there just simply has to be, at least logically, there has to be some being that is greater than all of us that is holding all these things together. And so it's just a, it's one of those things where there's just all these evidences by itself. It doesn't necessarily mean, yep, there's a God or yep, it's the God of the Bible. But when you look at all these different things and keep combining them and adding them together, it's phenomenal. I mean, you know, a, a lot of, that's why sometimes individuals have a hard time believing why are not more medical doctors Christians? Because when they look at the body, the body is absolutely insane in its abilities. It's just nuts. I don't know if you ever noticed this. I noticed this when I was a kid because I heard it. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if you, uh, if a kid gets a cut on their hand and you wash it, even if you don't put medicine, you know that it magically disappears. Now, the movies can make it look like it disappears in an hour. All right, that's because they're saying the kid's an alien. But in real life, over several days, it disappears, right? It goes away. In fact, sometimes it goes away, there's not even a scar. So what happened? Well, the body healed itself. That's pretty incredible. I just wish it did that with everything. Can you imagine? You have cancer. Oh, well, my body can heal itself. <laughs> that would be really cool. You know what I've seen with my situation is how as things change, even though they're abnormal, how much the body tries to compensate. Yep. It's amazing. Absolutely. Uh, that they've noticed that with individuals who have uh, massive brain trauma and accidents. You know, because they, they, they've mapped the brain and they know certain functions take place on the right side, certain functions take place on the left. There's been individuals who've had half their brain taken out because of a car accident or what have you. And so that would mean there's a, let's say, let's say it's the part that has, handles all these motor skills. And so like eventually over the course of months and years, the brain rewires itself, and they're able to do at least many of those of those uh, functions. It's phenomenal uh, to say that. that's how God designed us, which is this is unreal how all that happens. But again, all those things I think point to clearly that there's no way we can say, oh yeah, I mean it was an accident. Good thing it turned out the way it did for us. Uh, that's too many accidents. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Romans chapter one says. Man knows that God exists, and he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. That's what sin does. We, we don't want there to be God. We want to be God. It goes back to the book of Genesis. When uh, Lucifer tempted Eve, he told her, eat the fruit, you'll be like God. And so then she looked at the fruit, and it looked really good. Um, and so ever since then, that's kind of been the tension and so that's what it is. Uh, I can't remember who they are. I need to try, I'll probably need to look them up and then write them out and put them on a plaque. Uh, but there's been a few individuals through the years, mathematicians and or scientists or both, who have said certain things like this. Uh, one scientist was asked, so do you believe in evolution? And he says, well, I have to. And so the reporter said, why? He says, because the only other option is to believe in God, and we just can't have that. To me, that's just very telling. <laughs> you know, at least he was honest. Yes, Mike. Yeah, I saw a movie. It was called Moonfall. It's a science fiction movie, and it had this. Wait, it's called Moon Who? Moonfall. Okay. Basically, the moon was falling on Earth. Okay. You know, uh, but it was so funny. It turned out to be an alien construct or whatever. And it's just so stupid because it's like it was pretty good until you got that part. You're like, you can believe all that, and that aliens did all this stuff. They're super intelligent. They made man, but they yes. didn't believe in God. Well, I do. Yeah, I do think it's humorous that one of the world's leading microbiologists has said that where, when answering the question, where does life come from, he said 
that an alien deposited some crystals in a pond or puddle of water. I'm serious. It sounds like it's a joke. That's Richard Dawkins. It's what he said. You can look it up. It's unbelievable. That's what, that's, that's what he believes, I guess. I, I actually don't think he believes that. I think he's got nothing else to say, but he's not going to go in the direction of God. So, well, I don't think he's confused. I think he's actually purposely he's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That's just what, yes, sir. Mm. How were they able to live so long? Like Methuselah and sure. all uh, Well, there's a lot of explanations uh, about that. A lot of it has to do with um, A, the aging process, what ultraviolet rays do, that there was less ultraviolet rays penetrating the Earth's atmosphere at that time. There was greater consistency in the weather. Uh, all, all that took place after Adam and Eve said, remember that man was created perfectly and man was created to never die. So the effects of sin begin at that point, and then through time, continue to get worse and worse. So you'll notice that uh, man does live a long time, all, all the way up until a certain point, and that's when the flood takes place. So something catastrophic took place at the flood. Several different theories as to what's happened at that point, um, and a lot of them make a lot of sense. Uh, we know a little bit about what happened because the Bible tells us about the rain and the flood and, the, and, the, and the, the water that flooded the earth not only came down from the sky, but the earth opened up and water came from underneath and whatever. So there's some major catastrophic changes. And from that point uh, on in Genesis, you, uh, you'll notice that the average age of man drops dramatically. I mean, it just poof, down. And so then by the time that David is around, he's writing in the Psalms that basically... Uh, the average lifespan of a man is 70, and if he's strong, 80. And so, uh, and that's kind of, where, how, kind of where it's hovered for a long time, ever since then. Um, the, uh, the average age of death in our country, well, before COVID, it was uh, 70, I think it just reached 78.6. What I do find is interesting is that the average age of death in America now after you subtract all the COVID deaths, is still two years less. So man, even without COVID, is dying two years earlier than normal in our country. Uh, this, it's, I think it's, there's some other countries I've read some stats where it's similar in the drop. Um, some people are saying they can't explain it. Some people are saying they can. But anyway, uh, that's kind of where it's been. Uh, if, you, if you look back in our country in the 1800s when there was the big move to the West, you know, the wagon trains and all that, the average lifespan of a man then, most men died before the age of 40. And that was because of the, the harsh weather conditions, uh, poor diet, et cetera. But then as, once again, as our technology began to expand and catch up, then that age uh, uh, at that time was restored to where basically people lived to 60s and 70s and 80s. You know, and, you'll, and you've always had through history individuals who did live maybe to 80, usually individuals who lived in a warmer climate or lived in a city where there are more doctors, et cetera. But, so, but you see that throughout all of time. But that's, but, and that's all the effects of sin. Uh, but, that, but it goes back to, uh, again, back to, to Genesis. Uh, like I said, there's, if you go to, there's a website called Answers in Genesis. They got, they got probably nine or ten articles dealing with that and some of the medical things. Uh, I have read that science said... Uh, Scientists said several years ago, like maybe 30, 40 years ago, that one of the dilemmas they're facing if, that they've been trying to answer a question is when they study the human body, it looks like that the human body should function for 200 years before there's any signs of wear and tear. So why is it that we're dying at 70? Why are we not dying at 150 or whatever? You know, there's a lot of different reasons for that. But um, I just thought it was interesting that that was their observation. These are guys who aren't Christians. They go, yeah, we should be living the 200. I don't know what the problem is. Um, so there's a lot of things in that. But again, all that goes back to Adam sin. When they sin, it brought in death, and there's been changes ever since. Drastic changes. Yes, sir. MJ, go ahead. When God looked from heaven before he announced the flood, he decided that man's life should be no more than 120 years. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so bad. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, Mike. Um, if, like, when 
crystals and stuff like that? Yeah. How do they reconcile the fact that there's no proof of any of this stuff? They don't. I mean, but that's the whole point of science. I mean, that, oh, I agree. that's what they always they say do experiments. And Absolutely. Hypothesis. And I agree. They don't. But they don't ever call them out. <laughs> oh, they do. And they don't answer or they dance around the question and make or fun of the person. Yeah. Yeah. There, he was interviewed once. Oh, I can't remember the guy's name. There was a video made called Expelled. And it was a documentary as a showing how in a lot of major universities, actually just a lot of universities in our country, that if a professor is a Christian, uh, if he's somewhat outspoken, especially if he talks about the uh, lack of evidence for evolution, etc., they either don't make tenure or they kind of showed all these inconsistencies or how they're laid off or fired. And so this guy is, is kind of exposing all of that. And um, so in that, he, there's this, he, he's, he's a guy who's a comedian who's done this documentary. Ben Stein, ben Stein that's the one. Real dry with a comedian. But anyway, he interviews Richard Dawkins. And it's really funny in the end when he asks Richard Dawkins, well, how do you explain life? And Richard Dawkins gets into the whole alien and the crystals. And the, and the crystals were actually on, I guess, on the back of the alien. I mean, how, how do you know that? But anyway, um, and, you know, Ben Stein was kind of like, really? <laughs> it's, it's hilarious, <laughs> to say the least. But again, I mean, R Richard Dawkins, without shame, he, that's what he says. And it's just, you know. But again, that's... If I said that, I'd be a bit. Well, it would be, yes. Um, to, yeah. Mm. Um, you know, I read it, I've been trying to figure out where dinosaurs, they had to walk when man did. They did. So I'm thinking, and then when I was reading in my commentary and the John McArthur Bible, that the, the flood, like you said, caused all kind of cataclysmic yep. things to happen. Yep. And maybe that's when they were. That is when they were. That is. Yeah. Uh, if you read some of the stuff in Answers in Genesis, what you'll find out, which I didn't know this until I read some of the stuff years ago, that the average dinosaur is four feet tall. See, we think of T-Rex and all the rest. So we're thinking, how in the world did millions of these gigantic animals die off and we don't see them? Well, they, the average dinosaur was four feet. So um, now I don't know if there was a baby T-Rex on the ark. Um, if there is, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. Um, they just didn't live long after. I, but I don't know. They have, they have ways they talk about it, and I would defer to them on all of that. But, uh, you know, I know, and they didn't have to be adults. They could have been, they could have been babies so that you wouldn't have a T-Rex running around the ark eating people. But, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, turn to second Peter chapter three. What we know is that one day in the future, God will dissolve this strong nuclear force that is, I guess, holding everything together. Peter describes that in verse 10 where basically the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Uh, so what we believe, you know, we believe as Christians that we will live for eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. The dilemma that is unanswerable, but you have people on two sides of the argument as to what will be the new earth? In, in other words, will the new earth, be, will the earth we live on now be completely destroyed and God will make a brand new earth that we live on? Or will this earth be basically destroyed and purified by fire and then reformed uh, to the new earth that we live on forever? And you have different guys on both sides debating the issue. It's whichever side you pick, it's okay. Uh, I don't know which is exactly correct. I tend to believe that this earth will be destroyed and this is being purified and be reformed and that's where we will live for all of eternity. But if you believe, nope, it's a brand new, brand spanking new place, uh, I won't hate you. <laughs> and don't hate me. <laughs> uh, all I know is it's going to be really awesome uh, and there'll be no complaints uh, from anyone. So anyway, uh, that's what we just need to remember. So that whatever is holding all these things together, which is God, that's going to be that's going to be gone, and there will be this really a massive explosion. Again, Hebrews one thirteen it says that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. 
So again, Christ has to be God. He made the universe. He exists outside the universe. He exists before the universe, and he preserves the universe. Which chapter? Cha- uh, sorry, chapter one. I think I have it, the reference in your notes. Yep. I try to make sure I put all the references in there in case you miss them. Uh, so verse 18 of Colossians chapter 1. We'll just start to touch a little bit of this uh, just because of our time. Um, Dr. Mool, which is M-O-U-L-E, he says this, Thus far the apostle has unfolded the glory of Christ as the cause and the bond of all things in the sphere of nature, material and otherwise. Now he turns to the sphere of grace. And what he means by that is because it says in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So when he says he's the head of the body of the church, Christ is the head uh, of every church. That's why every church has a, churches have pastors and elders, but none, there's no pope. Right? I know Catholics have popes, but there's no pope. All right? There's no Baptist pope. There's no evangelical pope. All right? The head of the church is one individual. That's Jesus Christ. Um, so technically, even though a pastor is a shepherd, the, I, I think the more accurate term is we would be called under-shepherds. Jesus is the great shepherd, and, and then pastors or elders are under-shepherds. We're all under his authority. It's all about him. Uh, everything we decide is, is we, would, we would at least claim that we try our best to be biblical, and it's about Christ and his body. Uh, This isn't about building anyone's empire. This isn't about building a big church in honor of any individual. It's not about any of that. Um, We are, in one sense, and if you look at it, if you look at it like a corporation, we are expendable. The Lord will raise up for himself leaders and shepherds, no matter what happens to the shepherds and leaders you have now. Uh, And it continues on, and it will continue on until the Lord returns. Uh, But it's all about him. And so he is now emphasizing that, that even though Christ is the head of all things in creation and is preeminent all these things, he now also is focusing specifically on the church to make sure people understand who is the head of the church. Part of the reason for that, part, is because there had always been rumors about Paul, that Paul had started his own religion, right, which was Christianity. We know that's not true, but that was some of the rumors that were going around, that this was Paul's religion, uh, or that it was a new religion, and it was none of those things, or that it was about Paul. Paul, at times, and other, other apostles would be accused of being like the philosophers that lived back then that would travel around and get a following and collect money to live off of and whatever. Uh, and Paul said, well, no, that's not what we're doing. Even though he did say the church should support the, the shepherd, and he says that, but there were times when Paul would go to place and he would refuse that uh, because he wanted to make sure people really understood uh, that it was all about Christ and it was about him trying to enrich himself uh, in any way off, off of those that he was teaching. Um, and so that's why he is, again, emphasizing that here because these teachers, these false teachers that have come into the church, one of the things that's consistent about uh, false teachers is they want people to follow them. It's always that way. Almost always when churches split, um, when it's not like, you know, sometimes a church split is actually a good thing. It's supposed to happen. Right? If all of a sudden there's a, let's say the pastor suddenly decides he no longer believes that there's only one way of salvation. That's a major deal. Right? And if the church doesn't take care of that, then the true believers need to leave because uh, you, you, can't, you can't have a church that way. You can't, have, you can't do that. So in that sense, the, that split would be good. Some of the denominations that exist, uh, they, it was a group that split from another group because they had gone contrary to Scripture. So that was a good thing. But there are other reasons why churches split, which is normally bad things. And often in those situations, not always, but often, uh, whoever the leaders are of the group that's causing the problem is because they're trying to get people to follow them. That, that's what it boils down to. They want you to follow them, their ideology, whatever it happens to be. Um, and so that's why um, I've always stated this. I noticed this when I first got here to the church. Uh, and it's always been a wonderful thing. And that is, is among the leaders... There's never been anyone I know of who has their own agenda they're trying to push. All the men we've had, no matter what their maturity, if they serve in any official capacity to lead, the goal is they really want what's best for the church. They really want what, uh, is what the Bible says. Even if they don't know everything the Bible says, that's what they want. And there's a ton of churches that you don't have that. Uh, for whatever the reason, and I don't, you know, I could tell you stories for the next hour, but I won't do that, uh, of things I've heard and things I've even seen in other churches. Um, 
So we've been blessed in that way. So there's, again, there's no church that's perfect. There are many other churches that do the same thing we do where the, there is no, no one with a hidden agenda. Uh, sometimes it can come up with individuals who have a hidden agenda, may come up and, and cause some problems. I do think, um, I'm not going to tell you any stories about our church, but there's been a few times when I think there were a few individuals who made attempts, weak attempts, um, to try to do something like that. It just kind of fizzled. You know, and there was no one made any effort for it to fizzle. The Lord was just good, uh, to say the least. But the bottom line is, is that that's what it's about. So that's what Paul's doing here is to make, he's making sure they understand uh, that Christ is preeminent, again, in every way. So he wants to make sure that he leaves no stone unturned. So again, the head of the body, the church, Christ is the head, means that Christ guides the church, he directs the church, he controls the action of the body, which is to uh, represent him uh, and to present his presence to the world. So again, as a human body is a vehicle by which the person expresses himself, so the body of Christ is that vehicle which Christ has on earth by which he chooses to express himself to the world. And so that's what the church is to do. That's what we are to be. Individually and collectively, we represent Christ and we present Christ to the world. And so if someone comes to visit us, hopefully what they will discover, uh, even, even if a church has people with strong personalities and all of that, which is great, uh, hopefully what they'll discover is that everybody really does want Christ to be exalted. And it's, it's about that. Um, when it comes to even my own job description, it pretty much comes right out of the Bible. You know, the things that I have to do, things I'm supposed to do, is what the scripture says the pastor's supposed to do. I don't, I don't, you know, I didn't take a leadership class on how to be a general in the army because this isn't the army. Um, the idea is, is to, there, there's this term we use sometimes in Christianity called servant leadership, which is not the American way. Um, but the idea is, is that you, you lead by serving others. Uh, and it's a, it can be kind of a, well, it's not really all that difficult. And I don't think it's all that complicated. It's just so different than what people are used to when it comes to either a group or a corporation or a, um, a body of people or what have you. It's just a very different way of, of approaching things. Uh, but it's the way that God has ordained, and it's that way for a reason. Um, and so that's what Paul is getting to. So we'll stop there because uh, I have another quote, but it's a long one. And so instead of just reading it to you and then uh, going our way, we'll just stop there and, and pick this up again next week. Uh, so again, remember next week, we'll, we'll start at 645, and we'll go to 745, and uh, we'll see how that goes. We'll see if that works. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace and kindness and love and goodness and for all that you provide for us. We thank you, Lord, again, for the clarity of which Paul taught, the exactness and the depth of what he has given us here, that Christ is preeminent, that we, uh, once again, Father, are assured of what we, what we already knew was true, that Christ is to be glorified, uh, that it's right and proper that we worship him, and that he has truly revealed to us the Father. And so, Lord, we ask now that as we are dismissed from our time together, that you will cause us to think on these things every now and then. Uh, we pray that it will affect the way that, we, the way that we live and the way that we think and just the way that we respond to life. We pray also, Lord, that we'll grow in our gratitude of all the wonderful things you've given and provided for us. Keep us safe as we go home until we're able to meet together again to, to worship and honor you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.